Let's pray. Father, we pause before this message and ask. I personally ask you that you would allow for your voice to speak through me and that my heart and others' hearts would hear from you and be more established in the character of that love and expression of life that we see in Jesus throughout your word. There's an old Irish blessing that God co-authored with an Irishman. And I want you to imagine for a second that in the morning, every morning, as you started your day off and you were to actually maybe leave the door of your room. I hope you do at some point. But anyway, you know, you leave the door of your room. And as you walk out, God is there. And he says something like this. My child, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may you know, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. May I hold you, may you feel my grasp throughout this day. And then he hugged you and said, go get him. How would you feel? Would it change the tone of your day? If the God of all heavens came and started your day with this blessing. And then imagine throughout the day if God co-authored through you because of that blessing you experienced or through others blessing into your life. Wouldn't that be really too cool? Well, in a sense, God began this world with a blessing. He spoke forth creation and then he looked at it and he goes, it is good, which is the definition and sense of a blessing. It's speaking well of. And then when he saw the people that he created, you know, he said, it is good, it is good after he created all these things. And then he gets to the last and the, the ultimate of his creation. And it's not a man, it's really a woman because, you know, man, then he woman. And he looks and he goes, wow, this is really good. It's as if he looks at you today, right now, and through me, he's co-authoring this little statement. He says, you are really one gorgeous example of someone who I love and created. And God begins creation that way. And, and as we go throughout life, we read about Jesus himself. And he says, even in the midst of all the negative stuff that goes on in the world, because if you look at most of the things going on in the world, you watch what's on TV, you see movies, you see in magazines, you read these things, or you experience it in the workplace, you're in school, if you're as a, you know, in, a, in an educational format or through life in general, sometimes even within our families, we experience a lot of negatives, a lot more negative things, it seems, or at least we remember those. And then Jesus says, in the context of all this, he says, I, want to, I just want to share this word with you. Love your enemies, those who seem to oppose you or stand against you. And then he explains how you do it. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. A blessing defined by Webster is the utterance of a wish, request, or direction that good should follow, pronounced over a person or an object or the benefit which follows such utterances.
We've been looking at Galatians, and it begins, and Paul starts off really upset and angry and actually begins just the opposite of a blessing with a curse. And he does so for a purpose. There are times when you look at things and you, you say, curse, be gone, no longer get rid of. So when you see an infection mounting in the body of someone you love, you say, what, you pray against it. But as he goes through this whole process and he starts talking to the Galatians, he now is starting to move into this place where he explains the gospel, which is a source of all blessing. This relationship with God where we begin to understand how deeply we're loved and in the midst of that love, we begin to experience the fact that that it's not up to us. It's not how much we can measure up. It's not what we can do. It's not the love in our heart for Him, but His love in His heart for us, even when we are opposed to His ways and will, even when we do bad, He does good. Even when we speak poorly of someone, God still blesses. Even when we are treated harshly, Jesus Christ in heaven is still praying for that person and asks us to as well. It's just so different as Paul begins to make this transition, and this change. He, he moves from this place where he's defending his authority to be one who has been called from God as an apostle and begins to, he has been defending the fact that the message he has is not one of compromise, but it comes from God as well. And then he explains the fact that his, exchange, this, his life is different because of what God, this message and God has done. And then he starts moving into and he shares a bit further as we get into chapter 2 how this gospel he would not compromise on because it was blessing intended for all. What's interesting as I was going through this, there's some lessons to learn around this idea of blessing. Because as you get into chapter 2, you see it begins in verse 1 with this 14 years after, after uh, Paul's conversion. And as I was going through this in my own um, study time, I, I read through this and I just started to make notes as I went along and 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 decided I wouldn't look at the commentaries till later and just see where God was leading me. And one of the first things that really appeared to me in a general sense when I looked at those first few verses was that God seems to want us to bless others through the process of life. God is about, in the midst of our life, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the things that are going on, God wants us to learn how to bless others and not to avoid it or try and get by it or, you know, to get over or around it, but to actually, as we go through it, be able to be people in the midst of negative, trying, difficult times to still speak blessing. In fact, when you read this, one of the things that just jumped out to me as I saw this is that, that we're to be open to the fact, as Paul was, that God is more concerned about the process than he is the end product. God is about the discovery along the way as much as he is about the destination. Now, that's difficult for some, is it not? And so when you read this passage of Scripture, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Last week, I shared with you the road to freedom, this, this course, this, this path, this struggle that the early church and Paul had to this proclamation of when they finally said, here's the gospel so that people could be blessed in it. But it was a process. If you look at Paul's life, in, it begins in, in, in chapter 2. You look at verses 13. 
14 and 15, and you see him reporting to, to these people in Galatia his Damascus Road experience, where he saw Jesus and, and Jesus revealed himself to him. And then as you read on in, in verse 17, he goes on and he says, I didn't go immediately to Jerusalem. In fact, I went immediately to, Ra- to Arabia, which is an interesting thing. We said last week, why would you, after you would hear um, Jesus call to you, why wouldn't you go right out? Because Jesus said to him, you're going to bring the gospel to Gentiles. That was in his call. Why wouldn't you go out and do it? He doesn't. He goes for three years down to Arabia. So he takes, he heads from Damascus down to the southern part into the desert, into the wilderness, and, and spends three years being alone with God. And as I said last week, one of the things that's exciting about um, our God is that he desires to be present and conversing with everybody and anybody who wants to be in relationship with them. But the way that happens it doesn't just kind of happen. You actually learn. That's why he took three years. He, he took time to read the Old Testament to understand what had been revealed to him so that he could at least grasp it and get the truth of that. And as he began to get the truth of that, he also went there so that he would have a firsthand experience. He wasn't into someone else's experience. He wanted to hear from God and to walk with God and converse with God. So he spent three years developing that kind of relationship. And I just encourage us to do the same. That's what those experiences are, that we get present with God enough that we begin to hear his voice. So in verse 17, he says, after he went to Arabia, he went back to Damascus. And, and then verse 18, up to Jerusalem. Here's the road, his path. And both at Damascus and Jerusalem, he heads back into the place that he had left. And as he goes back to this place, it takes a lot of courage because there are people who are afraid of him because before he's been persecuting them. And there's people that are there who can't stand him now because he's betraying them and he's actually become one of the people he was persecuting. But he goes back and he testifies about his experience and he begins to teach. But he, he, he teaches so well, but he's not teaching out of what we would call the spirit. He's teaching out of his natural strengths and gifts. And the reason we know that is because it says that when he went to Jerusalem, he was there and as he continued to teach, he created such a stir, it says in Acts, that chapter, when you read that in chapter 9, verse 30, 31, that there was, such, there was such an upheaval that he was causing that the disciples came around him and said, you know, Paul, um, we think you need a spiritual timeout. Literally, that's what it says. We, we think you should go to Tarsus. So Paul <clears throat> doesn't give us that, and this, he doesn't snap the purpose, but in, in chapter 1, verse 21, he makes a statement that I went to Syria and Cilicia, which was an 11 year spiritual time out. And then after 11 years, and I'm sure like some of us going, God, when are you going to use me? God, didn't you call me? Didn't you prepare me? What what am I doing in this place? Never felt that way. After 11 years, Barnabas goes, as he sees these Greeks, these Gentiles in the church of Antioch starting to come to faith in the message of Jesus, he goes, oh, yeah, Paul, he's really good at that. In fact, I think God calls him to that. So he gets on the phone. Yeah, anyway, he um, somehow gets a message to Paul. Paul comes down to Antioch and begins to take over this ministry that's being birthed in this church called Antioch that's it's really creating waves throughout 
all of Palestine, especially down in the Jerusalem, because they start hearing that these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ and they're not getting circumcised and they're not doing things, some of the things in the law that you need to do if you're going to really be accepted and approved by God. So at that point, we read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We read in here that 14 years later, after his conversion, Paul goes up to Jerusalem. And he refers to this second visit. Now, you need to realize in chapter 2, verse 1, we are at this point still before the Galatian mission. This is before he's even written this letter. And this is before the church council meets in Acts 15 to make a proclamation and decision that those who are Gentiles who are coming to faith only need the work of Christ. And it's all a matter of grace. And it's not one bit a part of your work or what you achieve or what you need to do. It is merely a matter of trusting in a, a life that gets exchanged into your life that transforms your life so it can begin to express God through you. Okay, do you get that? So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul goes up there, and before the Galatian letter is written, he goes to the Jerusalem council. And again, if the, if the council of Acts 15 had already occurred, Paul would have, in this letter to the Galatians, merely ended all arguments by saying, guess what, folks? In Jerusalem, we had a council, and everyone decided that if you're a Gentile, you don't have to be circumcised. Matter, case, close, right? That doesn't happen. And there's a reason for that. Because we are to bless others through the process. In the process, which we often hate, God is calling us to grow up. He's giving us opportunities to, one, begin to integrate the things that are happening around us and that we're learning from Him, as well as beginning to purify our hearts so that our character becomes like Him. Does that make sense? See, in my mind, when I read this, there's a part of me that goes, man, God, you could have made this whole thing a lot easier if you would have come out, Jesus. You know, you could have said before you died, guess what? All the Gentiles are in. Right? Why in the world does God allow you and me, and as a church, even as we go through vision, casting, and direction, and setting up of how we do worship and all these things, why does He let us struggle? Bummer for us, right? Why does He just kind of lay it out? Because there's a reason God allows for His church to struggle. One of it is, when you struggle and when you work through things, it's through that kind of chewing and mulling over that you actually digest the thing so it begins to become integrated into your heart and life. I can share with you the sermons that are usually the ones I'm most fearful of, the ones I think I'm going to fall my face on, are the ones that I struggle and wrestle with and that I come up to the pulpit sometimes and they go, oh, you just need to help me. And he goes, good, I'm glad you're there. But what's happened in the struggle and the process is I've had to wrestle with these truths so they become more a part of my life. It's not just a head thing. It's an actual, hopefully, it's a heart-integrated thing. So why does God allow us to struggle even as a church as we go through vision casting? And, and why does He allow you to struggle at work through things? And why does He allow you to struggle in a marriage? Because God is not so much concerned about the destination and the end product. He's not so much concerned that all your life is lived with a sense of harmony. God is not so concerned that you get a happy meal. Because we know when your kids go and get a happy meal, they're not happy, are they? Momentarily, right? 
God doesn't, at times, issue divine edicts on direction. Even something as incredible as this. All the Old Testament's pointing to the fact that there's a work that's going to come. There's a light that's going to come. That light shows up in Jesus and it shines so brightly to the Jews so that it can be taken to the Gentiles. And yet He allows the church to struggle. I just want to tell you, what an opportunity for us to learn in the struggle, wherever it may be in our life, to receive God's blessing when we go out the door. So that in the struggle, we can learn how to, in the midst of negativity, not participate in it, but co-author with God something someone might need who is negative, and that's blessing. Right? And so God's about the process. God, God, as you go on, it's really interesting. As you read this, it says, 14 years later, when I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, I took Titus along. And he says, I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Now, that's an interesting statement here because he's still talking about he's in the process. He's still in this struggle and he's still in this place. His, he makes it clear to the Galatians, I didn't go to Jerusalem again. This is another time I didn't go up to Jerusalem because I wanted to find out what the authority mom and dad have to say about this Gentile thing. The reason I went up to Jerusalem was in response to a revelation. Here's the revelation. It's in Acts chapter 11. Verses 19 through 26, Barnabas just calls Paul to Antioch, tells that story. Then 27 through 30 explains why they went up to Jerusalem. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Again, even though Antioch's north, Jerusalem's higher, so they come down to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Parentheses, this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Paul is making this point. He's going in the midst of the struggle, even as we are going through the struggle, and even as we were beginning to see in Antioch some people coming down from Jerusalem, some of them were coming and saying things like, you know, it's not enough for these Gentiles just to accept Jesus and the work he's done, but they need to also have a sign that they've been circumcised. That shows that they've really been approved by God. They also need to do this, this, and this. And if they do these things, now it's now Jesus plus this, they're approved. And, and Paul's gone, no, that's not what I know. So he happens to go in response to a revelation about the need of their famine and bringing gifts to them. So he brings these gifts, and then he says, by the way, you guys, could we just have a private little conference? Because I want to get your opinion on this. I, I know that the gospel God gave me came from God. I know he's called me as an apostle. And I'm not really coming to you guys, because for the last 14 years, since the time he called me, he told me that this message was to the Gentiles. I've learned about it as I've read about it for three years. And then 11 years, you put me into a kind of a spiritual timeout and even affirmed it more so. Now I've even actually seen the gospel transforming lives. In fact, here's Titus. Look at his life. So I just wanted to ask you guys, because I know this gospel has come independently, but are we talking about an identical gospel? <laughs> And the apostles, you know, he does this out of respect. And the apostles look and they see Exhibit A, Timothy, and they go, yeah, I mean, Titus. And they go, yeah, 
yep, that's kind of what he's been dealing with us about as well as we struggle through this. And, and the reason he says, I asked this so that I wouldn't be running in vain, that I, my fruit wouldn't be fruitless, my work wouldn't be fruitless, wasn't because, again, that Paul didn't understand that the gospel was to go to Gentiles, but he was saying this because he did not want to have these people coming from Jerusalem beginning to declare a gospel that's different and all the work they had done become fruitless. Does that make sense? So that's what he does. And in, as I was reading this, I was thinking about this is so cool, the way God works in the midst of process. He even blesses us in the process so that at some point later we can bless others. Isn't that cool how God works? God is this incredible, I, I look at it this way, he is, he is one that never wastes anything. He's the most, he's the greatest efficiency planner in the world. I mean, even the universe. This, this God takes things that are happening in your life that are kind of, by the way, aside kind of private little meetings, and even uses those things in order to do something later, which he prepared through that process so that when he wrote to Galatians, he could talk about this little story that he could say, by the way, isn't that cool? I mean, God is so cool. He wastes nothing. He recycles. He reduces. He reuses better than any waste management system, better than any green initiative that Al Gore could come up with. He will use the very things in our life that as we go through them, think in our mind that they are a waste. And God's going, oh, no, no, no. What you were going through here, <laughs> I'm going to use it again. Isn't that cool? That's how much God loves you. That's how personally involved he is in the details of your life. So that as Paul goes through this, he's going through the process. Praise God that God didn't send this console before this that he allowed for him to have to begin to integrate and so the whole church begin to integrate this whole process so that they would have to learn in relationship to love and honor and respect and care for one another so that the very character of Jesus could be formed because he is so I almost think the discovery is the destination sometimes I sometimes think that when we go through this stuff and the character of Jesus is formed in us it's that that brings us to the place that he can then do the things he wants to do So, at this point, in, I was writing the message, I got really excited, and I go, I'm going to go and just grab the mic and say, anybody want to share how God has used something in your life a long time ago now? But we won't do it, because we don't have enough time. Anyway. But make sure you tell that to somebody. Because you're testifying, your stories change people's lives. They are a way to Bless. Bless others, though, through the Gospels. What I began to see as I went through chapter 2, verse 2, it says, but I did this privately so that those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running in vain, he goes privately, for fear that he might have been off course, not because he was off course about the Gospel, but to make sure they're on the same page. Then verses 3 through 5, listen, he says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose some, uh, because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom. Isn't that amazing? I just The picture is these guys coming from Jerusalem. They're coming and they're sitting in the back of the church going, uh, what are these guys doing? I, I just think it's, anyway, no, that's my mind. Anyway, so it, says, it arose so they could spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. 
See, all this struggle they were going through that led up to the Council of Jerusalem where they made a proclamation that all that is necessary for a person to come into relationship with, with God was through Jesus Christ and through faith and the grace that He presents. All this struggle was to get to the place that the Gospel would be formed in such a way that we would know it and be able to share it because it is the Gospel. I will say it again. It is the Gospel. The Gospel. The good news that God loves you in spite of anything you've ever done. In spite of all that you think you can do for Him. God loves you. That's the Gospel. That the Gospel alone, the struggle was all for the Gospel alone, would be made sure so that through the Gospel, the whole world could be blessed. And so as you read through this, that's what happens. Verse 4. His first rumbling is beginning to take place in Antioch, which will later surface in Galatia. Verse 5. Here's where Paul pulls what I call a Martin Luther's here I stand speech. Verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. You know, Luther had great courage because at a certain point when he saw the abuse of the church and he began to realize the gospel is really a matter of the grace of God through your faith and the work of Jesus Christ. That's it, plain and simple. It's not all the things you do. It's what God does in your life through you afterwards. That's the change. And if you don't see those changes begin to start taking place, it may be that you don't really know the gospel. And then don't get discouraged because we sang this song, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Do you know the guy who wrote this? He wrote it out of his life's experience because he would come to God and then he would turn away and he'd come to God and he'd turn away. No one knows this guy's life as he worked through this whole thing. He was coming to him and going away and coming to him. And yet God still, he wrote this song because he understood the incredible grace of God. So even if you're in the midst of the sin and you're not seeing change, don't ever let go of this truth that God loves you and He is working in your heart and your life. Continue to press into Him. Continue to seek other people to help you. Don't find people to shame you and, and to put you in a place where they, they, they put you in this kind of confined place. But find these people who will come around you. They'll point out the truth. But they'll also tell you the deepest truth of God's deep love and grace. And so he, he, he's like Luther. He, he writes on this, he pounds these 95 statements on the door of a church. And at one point they tell him to recant. And he says before them, ready to die. He says, here I stand. Paul says, in a sense, I'm not going to back down for one moment on this point. Because it is the gospel that blesses everyone. In fact, you may not know this, but Tom Petty, anybody ever listen to the singer, songwriter Tom Petty? The inspiration for his song, I Won't Back Down, comes from this. Just kidding. Anyway, <laughs> well, it's kind of cool. The words are, well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up against the gates of hell, but I won't back down. No, I'll stand my ground, won't be turned around, and I'll keep this world from dragging me down because I'm going to stand my ground. You don't need to read any of other words, but that is the heart of Paul in the heart of this body. And we won't back down on this. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who's willing to trust it. Romans 1.16 The gospel is the message of God's grace. The work of Jesus is all that is necessary to change your heart and actually change your DNA to become a new person. The gospel saves, heals, and releases you from all bondage. Immediately, now. 
It's not about just the sweet by and by when you get to heaven someday. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. It's not about a fire insurance that you purchase now so that someday you won't have to fry, so to speak. The gospel is the power of God to come into your life right now to begin to transform your life, to change your life, so that the characters that seem, those, the characteristics in your life, the patterns of sin that you grew up with, God can, through His Word, through the Spirit, begin to transform your mind, and by the transforming of your mind, actually begin to transform your heart, and through your heart, begin to cause you to know what it means to have a better relationship in a marriage, to have a better relationship with your kids, if they're willing, and you're willing. To have the kind of relationship with people around you that is one of love, respect, and honor, and blessing. You can be a person who can take the gospel as a result of it living in you. And by it living in you, you will bless others. Amen. And so I get so excited about that. Because nothing blesses others like the gospel. And Paul wasn't going to back down. Neither will we. And I just love the fact that God's Word is so... I mean, God's Word, the Bible, is so real, so honest, so human. Isn't it? It allows you to see the struggle the church is going through. The struggle that they have to process through. They have to think. They have to go before God. They have to get on their knees. They have to be humble. They have to work together. Everything you go through in life, we see in this struggle. And, and we so often just want to say, well... Mom and Dad say, you know, or, you know, the kind of the authority thing, and God still allows us to struggle. And then the struggle is all for this process that the gospel will become full and whole and, and birthed out of us and in us so that it can bless others. And one of the ways we bless others is we recognize differences. And that's really what it goes on. He says here in verse 6 in through 10. See, life is all about sameness and differences. Everyone has a finger, right? Or you, you have fingers. But if you were to take your finger and press it on something so that the oils would, would stick to it, and they looked at the print, it would differ from everyone else's, correct? If they were to take a hair follicle and they were to look at the DNA, that DNA, although the strands, you would have similar strands in it, there would be different markers that would make you unique from someone else. You look at a snowflake. Snowflakes come down and they all look the same, Right? Until you grab one and what happens? It melts and you can't see whether it was different or not. Anyway. God's word is full similarity and yet in particulars we become different. God looks at his creation and he looks at all the differences. He says it's good, it's good, it's good. I bless that. So verse 6, he says, As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by your external appearance. These men added nothing to my message. Paul was respectful, but not overawed. Paul did not come to Jerusalem and go, Oh, it's the twelve. You guys walked with Jesus. Man, tell me about that miracle and this. And, and boy, you guys, oh, whatever you guys say. Isn't that amazing? He, he says in here, in in the early days of the church, I have a sense that Paul was beginning to worry about the leaders becoming idolized and being deferred to too often. So that he says here three times to the Galatians, because he does not want them to get into this game that they're being in a sense of awe and they're deferring to other people. Because he realizes these Galatians have the Spirit of God with them. Jesus has come into their life. He's transacted with them. And he wants them to know that just like the apostles and disciples who have God's Spirit, so do you. And God's Spirit will testify to what is true. 
And so he, he makes these statements and he says in, in chapter 2, verse 2, I met with them privately, those who seemed to be leaders. Verse 6, as for those who seemed to be important. Verse 9, those reputed pillars of the church. You go, well, that, that's rather disrespectful. No, he isn't being disrespectful. He's trying to help these people see, just like you and me, that we have the Spirit of God, that we have the grace of God in a relationship with Him. And even if you were not to have the Bible for a period of time, you still have the Holy Spirit. Do you know that they did not have the New Testament? Do you know that they didn't wake up in the morning and open a, a Torah and have their quiet times because there usually is only one and one was placed in the synagogue and you were lucky if you got to hear it once a week? Do you know that we have more Bibles and we hold these Bibles so high, but what we don't do is what Jesus said sometimes to the Pharisees. You study so diligently the Word of God and I praise you for that, but in them you don't find me. And he says, I just want you to know you don't need a second-hand experience. You don't need to look at the pastor and go, wow, don't they have a good, he has a good experience with you, God, or the teacher, or this person who looks like they have it. You can have that kind of reality and experience. And when that happens, I can tell you, Satan, who is an evil, real being, will be scared to death. Now, the differences. Paul goes on. And he says, to be, he's respectful of the leadership, but he also is not overawed. And he says there needs to be this balance, because people who are called in leadership are people who have faults and are error, just like all of us do. But there is something that's important about leadership. Let me share with you as a pastor of this church with elders. One of the things that we believe, that Paul believed as well, is that God calls people into leadership. The church prays about it. The church watches their life and recognizes it. And then the church comes around it and affirms those who are in leadership and then asks them to listen to God, to humbly follow Him, to seek His will. And in that relationship with others, to seek to, to lead as God lays it on their heart. And I just have to share with you as a church, I believe those who I lead with want to do that more than anything. And let me share with you from my heart. My heart is to do that as faithfully as I can. And to recognize there will be people here who say, you know, your vision or the way you're doing worship on Sunday mornings, I don't really like it and it's different from what I want. And I am never, ever, ever going to say that that's wrong. It's different. But I will always say that I will seek to listen and the elders seek to listen. And even though when we listen and, and we hear and, and, and yet we don't change course or change a direction, it does not mean we haven't heard. It just means that we're seeking to still follow what we believe God has called us to, still taking in what we hear, knowing we're fallible. Never ever will I stand up and try and shame people and saying because you see something different or you're walking in a different direction will I stand up and say as if I'm ex-cathedral or we as a, a, a group of leaders are speaking thus saith the Lord. No, we are saying this is what we hear from the Lord and with this conviction and humility we will seek to lead recognizing there's differences and blessing you. Anyone who senses God's 
calling them differently. Because if you read this, this is exactly what happens here. He says, on the contrary, they saw that I had been given the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been given the task of preaching the gospel to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. One of the most difficult things in the struggle of a church, the struggle of a marriage, the struggle in a business, the struggle in any kind of relationship is the ability to agree to disagree, to allow people to have their opinions and to form them and to follow them and then to come and give them the right hand of fellowship and say, I bless you. Let us just walk together. Or if it means that you're going this direction, I'm going, I bless you and I pray God's best on you. That's the kind of blessing that God calls us to. You know what? Paul and Barnabas at one point had such a sharp... The two guys who were so close had such a sharp disagreement that they split ways. But they didn't do it... They did it in such a way that there was still blessing so that later down the road they were able to come back together and God did things to them. No matter what we do, folks, the gospel makes it clear that there is grace through the struggle so that we receive God's blessing. And in that, we also are able to bless others now and possibly in the future as he takes the things that we don't understand. And all that struggle is because he's forming within us his character so that the gospel becomes ripe and full in who we are. So that as we go through this, we have grace to give to one another in order to be able to say to one another, I bless you. I stand with you in what you're doing, although I may not walk that way. Does that make sense? That's the grace of God. And I just want to tell you from my heart, as, as your pastor, my deep desire is that God leads and He moves us forward and He's doing these things in the midst of all this struggle and for those who are willing to stay on board and, and, and be a part of it and whatever what that means for you. I realize there's some within our church who are just going to adult Sunday school classes and I realize that happened prior to I ever came. People have the ability to protest and vote how they want. Some people protest by saying, I'm not going to give my money. There's all kinds of ways. And that's between you and God. One of the cool things in this passage of Scripture, after they get done, they get done and he just says in verse 10, all that I want you to know, all that I ask you is you continue to remember to fill the bus with food. In a sense. We may differ, but we have one thing we're called to. And there are people who are poor, people who are impoverished, not just materially, but spiritually. And let's do all that we can to bless one another and just go after what God is after. And, and my prayer is, there is, I know through the last year, I'll say it from the pulpit, there's been rumbling and it grieves my heart. I wish I could just change all that and fix it and I can't. Well, you might think I could, but I can't because of where I sense God leading us as the elders. It doesn't mean that we don't listen, but it means we believe that God is calling us in a direction, helping us through this struggle to form something here that we believe is forming within us something so that we can be a blessing of God to others. Co-authoring. Just think about it. This week, you could go out 
and co-author a blessing into someone's life. They'll see you, but they'll hear God in it. Let's do it. Father, we just come before you. And in a moment when we hear this song of blessing over us, would you just pour out your love and your grace? In Jesus' name, amen.